Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it's the 25th of February, and it's quite and it's a genuinely fine Friday kind of morning. In fact, actually getting here, I was quite sweaty actually to get here on the way because um, yeah, it's a bit muggy. Yeah, it's a bit muggy. Now, before um, we get into the kind of program, I'll just introduce our, the presenters today. So we have myself, Jacob, and me, Ari. Okay, so before I, um, we go into um, the nit and grits of our program, I would like to acknowledge that Free CR and Green Left Radio today is being broadcast to you from the, sto- uh, um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that this land was stolen and that, sa- um, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so... I guess um, probably the main thing that um, generally in this part of the program, we generally kind of cover what is kind of like the headline news uh, at the moment and then give kind of try and give an attempt to give a bit of a socialist kind of left wing kind of perspective on on the event. Now, probably mm. the event that's clearly kind of dominating the headlines right now is the recent um, escalation of conflict within um, the uh, within um, Ukraine, especially with um, quite disgracefully, the militarised response of Russia, who have mm. essentially authorised a special military operation um, into um, Ukraine. Essentially, a par- a, a invasion is essentially, in some sense, happening. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, of course, the most recent news story is um, that the um, Russia has just re- um, has taken over the Chernobyl nuclear site in Ukraine after, after probably a period of intense fighting on, on both sides, which would obviously have incurred um, lives lost. Mm. So, yeah, and I think yeah. this this has been obviously the thing that has kind of dominated. And I think, you know, as socialists and as left-wing people, we should absolutely um, condemn um, the militarised response from um, Russia and that, you know, there is no justification for um, the military action that um, has been taken. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Unequivocally, we should condemn the militarised action about all of this and like on the mention uh you of like what the situation is apparently as of about five minutes ago ukraine has said that 57 people have been killed on the first day of the russian invasion which is um what the ukrainian officials are referring to it as and also that there was there's absolutely no point to russia having taken chernobyl and it is in fact a massive threat in as the fighting could further destabilize things. Um, the, I don't know about nuclear stuff, but that's what they've said, is mm. that it, in fact, poses a significant like health threat to the people who still live vaguely in that area. Mm. And I think, yeah, the, I, I think the one, I guess a, a few other kind of important points to make, because I guess, yeah, one of the things as well is, I mean, 
for us, you know, none of us are necessarily experts on all the kind of on the all the political machinations that are happening mm. within this whole um, within Russia and Ukraine. But I guess the kind of I think some important points I think that have to be stressed in terms of how left wing people should be responding to this. And of course, you know, we started with the first point. Obviously, you know, we should be condemning mm. any sort of militarized response. We should be yeah. condemning um, the invasion of, of by Russia of, of Ukraine. And really, the solutions that we need to be arguing for has to not be a militarized response. Um, it has to be pushing for peaceful and diplomatic solutions to the mm. conflict. And I guess we can't also ignore, I guess, you know, everyone right now around the world, all these kind of Western power, Western capitalist powers are mm. acting very quick to condemn what's going on, you know, for, all be for better or worse. But there is obviously a certain hypocrisy um, in, in, the, in the Western government's response because obviously one of the kind of central issues which we're going to be covering later is obviously this whole issue of NATO expansionism, which mm. has actually only escalated conflict in this um in the region for the past eight years in fact these western powers you know calling for peace and diplomatic solutions their entire role in this has actually been to escalate conflict and in fact mm. that is a question we'll actually go into a bit deeper in when we um when i played this pre-recorded interview that i did um yesterday um mm. with sam rainwright and i guess one of the other other um, issues as well is the general kind of liberal kind of government um, capitalist kind of response to this is okay. Ru what Russia is doing is terrible. Yep, that, there's no doubt about that. But then the, the the solution seems to be that we just need. To, and in fact, Biden is making a number of announcements on this. And in fact, I can't. I don't have all the full detail of those kind of announcements. But the general sort of perspective of a lot of these Western capitalist governments is to just simply impose economic sanctions on Russia. Mm. Now. In some sense, you know, and I can, Belarus apparently, and um, in some sense, yes, this can seem like a reasonable kind of response from a sort of progressive kind of point of view. But I think we cannot ignore, as as left wing people, that these these economic sanctions, in in actual fact, is in in a sense a form of violence, mm. and really the impact of these economic sanctions will just disproportionately impact on working class people in Russia and make their lives worse people who actually have nothing to do with um, with the conflict as a whole. It is actually all in the hands of mm. the Russian government, um, the people in power who are making those decisions on the ground. Yeah. Um, I have the, the live updates, live coverage from Al Jazeera open at the moment, and they're reporting uh, basically that the, the plan of these sanctions from the UK and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, EU and the US is to apparently, uh, what's the term, is to isolate Russia from the global economy, which, as you said, is going to, that is, you're isolating a whole country from a global economy, especially now with a lot of the supply chain issues that we've been seeing around the world, that sort of project of isolation is going to disproportionately affect working people, of course, because if you're rich, if you're wealthy, you can get what you need um and even if that's not necessarily directly at the expense of uh you know lower income and working class people it is also <clears throat> excuse me it is also uh wealthy people don't face the same hurdles to getting things that working class people do right so these sanctions you might they might say we're going to cut off russia from the global economy but 
the capitalist class isn't actually interested in doing that as completely as it might claim now because and that has been seen in a lot of cases where countries have been sanctioned like this that the wealthy still have access to a lot of the the global markets or global goods trades even if it's through some kind of you know intermediary gray market black market sort of situation that the working people of all these these countries that get sanctioned don't have access to and so most of the effects that you get from probably in this case increased supply shortages and that sort of thing are passed down to the people not to government officials not to the government broadly speaking not to the wealthy class or the the quote unquote oligarchs of Russia and stuff like that yeah and i also think um on that on on this kind of question i also think the next kind of a point i think that has to be made um is What's been clearly observed in Australia, and I'll be kind of interested to see what Morrison's response is going to be. Um, in fact, Morrison's kind of response yesterday has been, you know, to kind of unequivocally kind of condemn sort of Russians' actions. But, of course, there's always kind of like going back to the whole question of the hypocrisy of um, the Western powers. You know, none of these Western – a lot of these Western powers who are kind of like sitting the – standing on their kind of moral high ground mm. – Never necessarily have never necessarily done the same when it comes to other issues. For example, what Israel has been um, has been doing in the past decade to Palestine through their occupation of Palestine. In fact, that has actually been accepted as kind of like, oh, this is a this is fine. This is a this is a normal thing. Israel is our friend, etc. Yeah. But one of the kind of one of the kind of things I'm a bit concerned about, and I guess all progressive and left wing people should be concerned about, is this issue of of Russia and. the, of the whole Ukraine, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, is really I see a, a, a pattern forming that a lot of these liberal capitalist governments, especially in the case of Australia and the United States, are going to use this kind of issue, this fear of Russia, this fear mm. of, um, you know, this fear of how they represent a threat to world peace, is really in a, in a sense going to be used by these governments to actually push politics to the right to actually distract yeah. people, ordinary working class people, from the actual domestic failures and the issues. Um, you already mm. see Morrison attempting to play the kind of national security card um, in this, and there's a federal election coming up. Um, they're already mm. using this kind of discourse of drumming up the war, um, the, um, this, um, this rhetoric against China. Yeah. Um, they're going to be, and, they, and of course, they're going to be doing the same thing around this whole, uh, in terms of the kind of response to this entire conflict. Yeah, because we've seen in the past, like especially with John Howard, how the certain types of rhetoric, especially pro-war rhetoric coming from the liberal nationals and the Australian right wing in general, have been actually used quite successfully to push politics to the right or in a sense to hold politics toward the right long enough for the liberal nationals to get re-elected. And so, like, this whole conflict is almost is almost kind of a gift to these sorts of uh, politicians because as you said Jacob they were kind of beating the war drums about China but that situation wasn't going anywhere there was not really much change in terms of the the situation between China and Australia and this uh, outbreak of armed conflict especially, but this um, kind of increasing tensions over the last couple of weeks and now the outbreak of armed conflict has really provided this, um, like you said, this kind of object or whatever 
the situation that the right-wing politicians can take advantage of in the sense of um, pushing nationalism and pushing the need for national security and that sort of thing. <clears throat> so, and you can see that even with uh, Labour and the Greens, less so the Greens, of course, but even both Labour and the Greens uh not ex- not completely siding with the Morrison government on these issues, but they are echoing similar um, kind of positions in the sense of like supporting NATO against Russia and supporting um, the kind of essentially the the program that NATO has been pushing against Russia in terms of, in regards to Ukraine that has at least in part led to the escalation that we've been seeing. Like, Putin, obviously, take anything Putin says with a massive grain of salt, but he did make the claim that this, quote-unquote, special operation against Ukraine was, um, he claims that he had no other choice, because in the negotiations with uh, NATO and uh, Germany and um, the EU and US and all these sort of Western capitalist powers, not that Russia's not capitalist, in all these negotiations, there are particular um, p- things that Putin and Russia wanted, uh, for which are particularly um, a ceased war military activity in Eastern Europe, and guaranteeing that Ukraine wouldn't be allowed to join NATO. That have those two uh, requests, demands, whatever, have just been flatly refused. And so, all these countries can call for diplomacy as much as they want, but when they get to talk to each other they don't they just refuse to actually attempt anything that in regards to diplomacy because these sorts of outbreaks of conflicts are in fact quite useful for especially like whipping up nationalist fervor and um holding politics to the right and in fact you kind of like if you if you look at both um if you look at both um, the actions, I guess, of the Russian government, and maybe, of course, to a certain extent as well, the Ukraine government. You know, a lot of the this whole conflict is really, you know, in some sense, it's mm. gonna, it's a way of um, for the the ruling classes of those countries to kind of push on this sort of nationalist yeah. kind of rhetoric um, yeah. that, in fact, actually kind of distracts from. Well, what are the actual what are the actual real concrete issues hmm. um, that is actually facing humanity right now? For example, climate yeah. change is obviously kind of one thing, but it's like yeah, obviously I think there's there's it's it's there's a, a none of these decisions that are being made about war and all these conflicts. You know, most the mo- the the ordinary people who are being who are most disproportionately going to be impacted by this conflict. Hmm. Um, whether they are new, um, Ukraine and Russia, they have had no. They don't generally have no say yeah. over any of the decisions that these um, that these the respective governments are making in terms of escalating conflict and so on. Yeah. And then, of course, everything that the, obviously the Western powers are doing, you know, going back to the whole diplomatic diplomacy mm. issue. You know, the actual fact is none of these capitalist states are necessarily negotiating in good faith because they yeah. all have their own interests that they want to preserve at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And it is a really good point that I probably should have made while I was talking there, that it it's not not in Russia's political, in Putin's political interest to do this. Like, 
Putin has essentially the same political interest in terms of pushing things right and drumming up nationalism. But it is worth pointing out that, like, uh, like I said, I'm looking at Al Jazeera's live coverage, and they've reported that uh, Russian municipal deputies, which I'm not sure exactly what that position is, but local officials from around uh, Russia, which is uh, 180 municipal deputies from cities across across Russia, including Moscow, St. Petersburg, Samara, and Volgograd, among others, again, 180, have signed an open letter strongly condemning Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. And they made this point. We are convinced that the citizens of Russia did not give him such a mandate and that this will have catastrophic consequences. And that is, I think, a really good point, is that a lot of people within Russia, including in uh, local government, don't support this. And the people of Russia don't support this. And I think we... Not everyone, but I think there can be a bit of a problem in terms of rhetoric around wars and around the idea of enemies and on a geopolitical sense of us kind of grouping together both the country's government and its people. And we should keep in mind that the people don't have the choice here. It's these governments, these people in power who are making these decisions and leaving the these catastrophic consequences to the people to deal with. Hmm. And yeah, I guess um, a last point I kind of to end on that is um, I think it's also important to report that um, there has been, there are, have been a number of protests in Russia mm. opposing yeah. the war, opposing what um, um, Russia, um, um, Russian troops being um, sent um, to uh, across the um, Ukraine border. There are actually, pro- yeah, there are mm. genuine protests actually happening in those cities. So, and I think, you know, it is important. <laughs> and of course, one thing you can't ignore, the fact is, Putin is actually um, the Putin government is directly repressing those um, those yeah. protests, um, and really, yeah, it's like uh, it's actually I think that you know the the the, um, the facts show that you know the majority of Ukrainians and Russians do not want war, and yeah. that is why you know we have to be fighting as socialists and as left wing people for peaceful diplomatic kind of solutions to this conflict. Yeah, uh, just quickly on the protest thing, uh, according to Al Jazeera. Excuse me. According to Al Jazeera, again, the Russian police have detained more than 650 people at anti-war protests as of a couple of hours ago. Mm. So there is an immediate crackdown. Mm. Anyway, I might um, we'll get, we'll, I'll go play this pre-recorded interview and um, so, um, shortly, though I have to add a kind of disclaimer to it because the interview was recorded before a lot of these sort of major mm. developments actually mm-hmm. happened. Uh, a bit convenient, but I still think some of the issues it's covered are still important. So. Anyway, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. I'm going to, I'll just play a quick announcement. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella. White fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes. We need more 
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So we were just having, um, me and Ari were just having a bit of discussion about some of the current developments that have been happening in uh, in Russia-Ukraine conflict, and especially the kind of recent invasion of uh, and the militarised response of Russia. Um, now, I'm going to be playing a pre-recorded interview that um, I, that was recorded yesterday. Um, this is an interview with Sam Rainwright, um, who is the national co-convener of Socialist Alliance and recently wrote um, an article uh, about the whole conflict, which is available to re- read on greenleft.org.au. Now, just a bit of disclaimer. Um, this um, interview was recorded prior to Russians' announcement that they would have, um, that they would um, be sending troops Groups across the, um, the border um, to invade. Um, so yes, some of the comments will probably be a bit out of date, but generally the interview is focused on you know examining you know what are the actual kind of roots of this conflict, and you know the roots of of this kind of situation, and especially in contrast to the general sort of liberal kind of response. So yeah, that's that's just that's just kind of a bit of a disclaimer because yeah, the um, but the article has. Um, been since um, updated on the greenleft.org.au website, taking into account um, the current developments and events. Anyway, I'll play the interview now. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. You're listening to Green Left Radio. For our program today, um, we are pleased to have Sam Rainwright with us. Um, he is a former councillor um, in, in, Freeman, in the city of Fremantle and also is one of the national co-conveners of Social Alliance and has also been a regular commentator on US imperialism and, um, and international kind of politics. Um, he just recently re- um, produced an article for Green Left responding to this ongoing Russian, um, the Russian-Ukraine conflict that has dominated the kind of headlines. And in fact, often the media response to that often gives, I guess, a very one-sided kind of view of the conflict. And of course, this is why we have Sam in our program today to have a bit of an alternative narrative on what is actually going on. Um, so yeah, good morning, Sam. Good morning to you. Okay, so maybe to kind of start off, you argue in your article um, that the relentless drive by the United States to expand NATO up to Russia's border in, and encircle its military is at the centre of the Ukraine crisis. And I guess, what do you kind of mean by that? And I guess, kind of unpack that kind of um, argument a bit more. Sure. Look, I think, you know, at the outset, let's say that there's plenty of things not to like about Vladimir Putin and his politics in Russia. Having said that, though, some of the security concerns that Russia has raised, I think, are quite reasonable. You know, NATO was supposedly formed to confront the Soviet bloc. Well, with with the dissolution of the Soviet bloc in the Warsaw Pact back in 1991, NATO should have been dissolved then as well. And the fact that NATO wasn't dissolved and the fact that NATO continues to push eastward, up pushing up hard against all Russia's borders shows very clearly that NATO's function, or one of its key functions, I should say, is basically to encircle milita- to encircle Russia militarily. And you shouldn't just think of NATO as just being some benign, nice thing. I mean, it's it's been responsible for some terrible interventions in the former Yugoslavia and Afghanistan. And also, NATO reserves, for, reserves the right for itself to install nuclear missiles on Russia's borders. Now, I'd say to people, just imagine 
Just imagine, if you can, the US reaction if Russia was seeking to install nuclear missiles on the US southern border. I mean, the United States just wouldn't tolerate it. They would have invaded Mexico a long, long time ago. Uh, and I think, you know, the Russian people, don't worry about Vladimir Putin and his particular, you know, his sort of game playing and his politics. The Russian people actually have a right to be free, free of that sort of menace as well. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we endorse all the responses, um, all the ways in which Putin tries to push back. But there can be no question that it's a really aggressive drive by the United States, via NATO, to encircle Russia, and in our region to encircle China, that is actually what is driving a new Cold War in our times. Hmm. And I guess, um, I guess one of, um, you mentioned, I guess, the United States, and I guess oh, it's quite important, I guess, what are, I guess, your comments about how the Biden administration in the United States, and I guess equally the liberal media has attempted to kind of inflame um, the conflict for their own political interests. And in fact, one of the kind of, there's one element with the Biden administration um, kind of pushing on this sort of narrative against, um, in that sense that it's uh, almost a way of sort of distracting from, you know, their own sort of domestic failures failures in the country to serve um, the interests of ordinary people within the United States. Yeah, well, it's um, it's been a curious thing. We've had this shrill insistence by the Biden administration and just breathlessly repeated without critique by most Western media that an all-out invasion and occupation of Ukraine by Russia is imminent. It's just about to happen. It was, it was going to happen tomorrow. It's, it's been, that's been like that for nearly three weeks now. Um, now, in spite of the fact that both Russia and Ukraine itself have said that this isn't about to happen. So there's been, very, there's been relatively little analysis of why this, you know, why this strange disjuncture uh, in our media. And one thing that it suggests to me is that the United States has been, is very keen to create a pretext for pushing along its geostrategic uh, imperatives um, in, in Europe. And so that, that they include uh, pushing more NATO troops up against uh, the borders with Ukraine, trying to stymie uh, the Nord Stream 2 um, gas project, uh, and, and, and blocking the expansion of Russian gas sales uh, to the United States. Uh, the United States doesn't want Russia to get that revenue uh, in the first instance, but in the second, would also like a market for its own for its own fracked gas. It seems like Biden is looking for an excuse for more sanctions on Russia as well. And it's almost like the United States has been, while knowing that a full-scale invasion and occupation of Ukraine by Russia is probably... Um, and I, look, I desperately hope I'm not proven wrong, but it's probably the least likely option. Nonetheless, they have been poking and pushing and trying to encourage some kind of conflict. Um, it's, it's pretty clear that the United States is the one that really wants a conflict out of this. Um, and if we're going to see one, it'll most, it'll most likely be, it'll most likely be in the, in the Donbass. As you say, I think there is also an element of the United States, uh, firstly trying to recover um, the United States and NATO trying to recover some of their prestige given the, um, the disaster in Afghanistan. And as you say, it's, you know, it's powerful. New message is received from J.O. The course that when a U.S. administration is starting to flag in popularity, it seeks to distract attention by um, appearing tough and decisive abroad. So I think, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things in the mix there. Um, um, and it's hard to know exactly, you know, in which proportions they have contributed to this situation. But I think I think they're all part of it. 
Um, and I think we should also um, just, you know, uh, just just to go back a step. I mean, one of the reasons I think that a full scale invasion and occupation of Ukraine by Russia is not so likely is that it would just be, it'd just be massively costly to, to Russia. I can't, I, you know, the cost of the Russian economy would just be absolutely enormous. And I don't think it would fit Putin's strategic um, scheming. Um, you know, while, while, while I think Russia is right to be aggrieved by NATO expansion, I mean, Putin's, you know, responses can be quite cynical and manipulative and um, he's quite prepared to interfere in the, in the affairs of neighbouring countries. But a, a occupation would just be too costly for Russia, I think. I don't, I don't think that's the more likely thing. As I said, attempt really to, 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 re, to restart the conflict in, in, in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass by the United States. I mean, the US and its NATO allies have just been absolutely pumping um, Ukraine with weaponry. Um, and one thing that's often not mentioned in the Western media is that the U Ukrainian government forces have massed around 120,000 troops along the line of contact, which is actually in breach of the Minsk agreements, which is supposed to govern a peaceful resolution of the conflict in the Donbass. So I think, I think if, if there is going to be an outbreak of war, that's where it will be. And frankly, that would be, that would be disastrous. Whether it started because, you know, Russia tries to nibble away at a bit more, um, Ukrainian territory or because Ukraine tries to retake the Donbass by force, egged on by the US. In, in both, in both situations, it would be a terrible outcome for, for human life and destruction and for, you know, chances for creating a better world, um, in that part of Europe. Yeah. And I guess that gets into, I guess, the next question, although you've sort of answered some aspects of, um, of this question, I guess, in your kind of early responses, but I think I'll just sort of frame it around, um, um, ask it anyway, because I think, you know, there's other sort of dynamics I think that you haven't necessarily covered. Because I guess one of the kind of common things has been that, um, even in Australia, they're kind of painting this kind of picture, um, that, you know, conflict between Ukraine and Russia is inevitable. Um, almost like, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, Russia is like this big sort of evil kind of empire that's just, you know, wanting to kind of, kind of expand. And I guess, I want to guess, hear your comments on why, um, why do you think that, you know, why, why is it that we should reject this narrative that conflict is inevitable? But also I want to, I also think that I want to see your answer to, you know, the fact that the media has actually been putting a very kind of one-sided kind of view on this conflict, like in, in actual fact, you know, the relative kind of power of Russia compared to the rest of the world is, um, is, is actually, you know, basically Russia is actually quite, as you argue in your article, is actually quite a much weaker power than, say, the Western, um, than Western powers. And I guess want to hear your kind of comments on that, especially in terms of the dynamics of, in, um, of how we understand or how socialists understand imperialism. Yeah, sure. Look, and look, just before I get onto that, one thing I do want to say is that even though I, and I think this is important to stress, is even though I think a full scale occupation, you know, invasion and occupation of Ukraine by Russia is very, un is highly unlikely, um, of course it is still possible. And, um, and even though uh, I think NATO's posture has been fundamentally aggressive to Russia, um, that wouldn't justify such a response by Russia. I mean, they should go without saying that the Ukrainian people have a right to, to decide their own, their, their, you know, decide their own future. Yeah, look, there's sort of the, the, the way our media presents Russia. It's, I mean, it's, first it's as if you know Putin is just a monster who does bad things because he's bad. Um, and it's almost like he can't be rationalised with. Um, now, you know, Putin's politics is pretty ghastly. Um, you know, it rests on 
uh, sort of hyper Russian nationalism, very sort of conservative social moral order, uh, nostalgia for, you know, the strong centralized state um, of the Soviet Union, uh, while rejection of, while rejection of any idea of, um, of, of socialism. Uh, so it's this, there's not much to, to, to recommend, uh, Putin's kind of worldview. Um, but I should add as well that, um, things are pretty grim in Ukraine as well. I mean, the Western media almost tries to pre- present Ukraine like it's some glorious liberal democracy. Um, you know, we can have another debate about just how democratic and glorious our liberal democracies are. But the fact is, is that democratic space is also being squeezed quite brutally, um, in, in Ukraine. And it's, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's, it's a very hostile posture that the West takes to both China and Russia, trying to encircle them militarily and encircle them with sanctions and, and all the rest of it, that actually helps feed, um, sort of hyper-nationalist authoritarian politics in both countries and tends to justify it. And we should remember that both Russia and China have actually suffered, you know, hor- horrendously in the Second World War, um, in a way that most Australians can't imagine, um, through terrible occupation. Um, yes, look, back to, 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 to Russia's, Russia's sort of strength and power. Look, you know, Russia in some sense is a bit like a light from a dead star. You know, it's inherited a lot of the, mil- the cutting edge military technology from, from the Soviet Union. And there's a few areas where it has, you know, where it's a world leader in, in some areas of military technology and avionics and that sort of stuff. But overall, Russia is, um, is a relatively poor country, you know, so the, the, the productivity of labor, uh, in Russia, that is, you know, the, the, the value of goods and services produced in one hour of human work is probably only about a quarter of what it is in the really rich, developed, high-tech countries of North America, Japan, Western Europe and Australia. So in that sense, you know, Russia's economy, in terms of its, its, its overall level of development, is more like Brazil or Mexico or Turkey. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why it would be very difficult for Russia to s- sustain a, you know, a, a, a long-term you know, full-on occupation of, of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine might be just next door, but it's still, that would still be a difficult thing. We, we need to bear, bear in mind it's only the United States has the military power to project a full-on invasion and occupation across the other side of the globe, like it did in Iraq. Uh, so what, one thing about, you know, Russia's sort of military actions is that in its efforts to try and break out of its own, uh, the, the, the sort of encirclement, being imposed on it by the West, and also in an effort to, to, to draw, you know, its nearest neighbours into its own, you know, economic and strategic projects, it is prepared to interfere in the in, in the affairs of of, of neighbouring countries, and sometimes in a really in a really destructive and un, unhelpful way. So, uh, even though I think in, in the world, you know, in the world setting at the moment, the primary aggressor is the US and the and the US military alliances. First and foremost, they are the threat to world peace. Having said that, though, the responses of Russia and China can sometimes be, you know, very destructive and un, un, unhelpful. And so it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we should automatically, you know, you know, flip over and and support them. Um, as I say in the article, that would be the anti-imperialism of fools. Instead, we need to sort of step back and really try to understand what is going on. Um, and have a sense of what would what what would best advance um, peace both there and in our part of the world as well. Yeah, and I guess um, awesome. the next kind of question is, I guess um, 
one of the I guess why it's important to kind of reject NATO expansionism, the the actions of the Russian state, I guess, in regards to Ukraine, um, Ukraine have haven't been necessarily kind of pure either. And I guess I want to hear some of your, even though you've um, made some comments earlier, alluding to effect. I guess I want to hear some of your comments, I guess, on some of the dynamics around um, around Russia and its relationship to Ukraine. And I guess why is it in, important to guess support self determination for um, for Ukraine? Yeah, look, it's um, perhaps a good place to start would be the um, would be the, the so-called um, Euromaidan movement, which overthrew uh, President Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and the Western media sometimes describes him as being pro-Russian, which is not which, which is which is not quite accurate. Um, the Essentially, Yanukovych represented a, a faction of oligarchs um, in, in in Ukraine, and was in fact about to sign a financial um, loan deal with, with with Europe. But sensing that that would see Ukraine drift out, drift out of Russia's sort of sphere of influence, sort of economic and political sphere of influence, and closer to Europe, Putin actually trumped that deal and offered Ukraine a better deal, which Yanukovych signed up to. Now, that pr- pr- prompted a strong reaction um, in, in west, of, west of Ukraine. And as many of you would know, there was a, there was a, there was, there was a movement known as the Euromaidan, which essentially overthrew by force um, Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and while that, while, while that movement to overthrow President Yanukovych was heavily influenced by the United States, the United States was definitely um, involved at a very high level, um, and the street fighters um, pushing at the front of that movement were extreme Ukrainian uh, far-right nationalists. Nonetheless, there was a certain mass base of support for that. You know, amongst Ukrainians, especially in the west of, Ukra- west of Ukraine, where U- Ukrainian national consciousness is stronger and people are more likely to both speak U- Ukrainian um, in their vast majority and identify ethnically as Ukrainian, um, there's, there's certainly a stronger... I guess you could say, uh, might say kind of a liberal kind of hope that Ukraine could be, be could become part of sort of a prosperous, democratic Western Europe um, and maybe even be drawn into NATO. And so, you know, there's a bunch of different strands, both Ukrainian national consciousness and this hope for being part of the of being part of the European Union helped fuel um, the, the, the Euromaidan movement. But there was but. Equally, the anti-Maidan movement in the east and south of the country had a mass base as well. Um, so it's important to remember that Ukraine does have long historic cultural and linguistic links with Russia as well, with people married across families and all that kind of thing. And of course, there are people you know, in, 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 in parts of eastern and southern Ukraine, uh, uh, Russian is the majority, is the majority language. And I mean, there are both people who identify ethnically as Russian, who speak Russian, and also those who identify ethnically as Ukrainian, but speak Russian as well. So it's just to give you a bit of a sense of some of the complexity of the thing. And, and one of the one of the first things that the new sort of Ukrainian nationalist government did that th- overthrew Yanukovych um, was to remove Russian as one of the co-official languages. Now, they then sort of subsequently tried to reverse some of that, but that really heightened fears amongst amongst Russian speakers and and essentially created what became something of a, of a, of a civil war situation and and produced the the breakaway the small breakaway self-declared republics um, that occupy part of the Donbass in in eastern Ukraine now so 
you know, I, I, all, all that makes it very clear that there's not going to be a military solution to the, to, to the situation um, in, 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 in the Donbass. Um, um, one thing I forgot to mention, too, is one of the other reasons that there was resistance to the Euromaidan in the east of Ukraine is, you know, it can't just be reduced to cultural or linguistic things, but there's also an economic dimension to it as well. And that is that the, you know, Western Ukraine tends to be a lot more uh, agricultural, with the exception of Kiev, which is much more kind of centred on the sort of service service industry and, I, you know, you know, tech firms and all that sort of stuff, whereas eastern Ukraine uh is much more um, has much more heavy industry and its economy is traditionally much more integrated with with with, with the Russian with, with the Russian economy. So it stood to lose out economically if there was greater integration between Ukraine and Europe, which essentially would have exposed you know Ukrainian industrial production to competition from 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 powers like Germany. So all those kinds of things that were at play, and of course to complicate the process, both sides in that civil conflict in Ukraine. There were, were were led or significantly influenced by capitalist oligarchs, basically, who were most concerned about their own about their own position and not you know and not the well-being of Ukrainian people. So it's it's you know it, it's quite a mess. But one thing is for certain is that it's not going to be solved militarily, um, either by Russia or by or by NATO. I'm trying to egg Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian government on to, to, to retake the, the Donbass regions by force. There's, there's, there's simply got to be a political solution, uh, and that's that's my real fear is that is that the um, the US has made it pretty clear that it's not interested in in, in in seeing a negotiated solution in the Donbass. And also the the Ukrainian government itself, you know, it's some people, you know, you can make a mistake in two directions. So some people sort of flip over and then accuse the Ukrainian government of just being far right nationalists or just neo Nazis. That's that's an exaggeration. I mean. There, there, there is a pretty repressive added, um, atmosphere in Ukraine at the moment, and there's, there's, there's a disproportionate influence of these far-right nationalist um, and neo-Nazi types in, in Ukraine. But that doesn't re- represent majority majority opinion in Ukraine. But but those elements, um, you know, make it very hard for the Ukrainian government to come to a compromise as well. You know, they would basically, you know, scream traitor um, if the Ukrainian government tried to ne- tried to um, Negotiated compromise with the um, with the separatist areas in in the east, um, and the United States basically hasn't been helping the situation. And I guess um, go, that, let's bring it back to I guess the kind of general kind of points. Um, you kind of one of your important arguments, that I guess you make in your article, is that I guess the primary obligation of those serious about uh, peace must be to reject the U.S. led campaign of in, uh, encirclement and confrontation. And I guess what can you say about that? And I guess what is, I guess, some of the solutions, um, you know, as a socialist that your guess um, that that socialists should be putting forward in terms of how we should be um, how we should be resolving this conflict? Yeah, well, look, let's you know, we, we, as as people living in a wealthy, you know, developed first world country, we need to pinch ourselves every now and then and remind ourselves that the world is divided, sharply divided into wealthy countries and poor countries. And we live in, we're we're some of the lucky ones amongst the 15% that live in the wealthy developed countries. But we need to understand that that separation of the world into rich and poor between the so-called global north and the global south is not an accident. They're codependent categories. And that there is a massive transfer of wealth from the global south towards the global north that continues every day and is actually worse in our current, you know, so-called neo-colonial or post-colonial era than it was during the period of colonialism. 
that it's actually a violent world order. You know, for that for that division of the world to be sustained requires violence, um, and it is sustained with violence. And any and 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 you know any any country that tries to buck that global order faces faces the wrath of the United States primarily. Um, and let's not forget that we were part of an intervention in Iraq, an illegal, full-scale invasion and occupation of Iraq that cost the lives of one million, perhaps as many as two, many, two million people, um, depending on how you make the calculations. You know, an intervention that absolutely ruptured Iraqi society, shattered it, and created the material basis, the economic and cultural basis for the emergence of a, of a ghastly gangster outfit like ISIS. Uh, so we shouldn't for one moment imagine that the US war alliance is a force for good and peace in the world. It's a force for violence in the world. It is the primary source of violence and terrorism in the world. Um, there's, there's no possibility of creating a better world, let alone confronting the, re- the serious challenge of, of runaway global warming while we remain locked into, into propping up this, 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 this violent world order. Uh, so for us in a country like Australia, there's, you know, there's only so much we can do about, you know, uh, Ukraine and Russia. But what we can control or what we should be seeking to exert an influence on is the policies of our own government. Um, and at the, at the moment, our own government is absolutely, you've heard the, the stuff by Peter Dutton, who seems to be absolutely gagging for a war with China. Um, that we need to, we need to break that military alliance with the United States. There's no, there's no, there's, there's, there's no path to peace, um, as long as we're locked into AUKUS. Um, well, um, thank you very much, um, Sam, for, um, for doing this interview. I think this has been a very insightful kind of discussion. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM Dial. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to a pre-recorded interview with Sam Rainwright um, about how, uh, about the roots of uh, the um, Russian-Ukraine kind of conflict. Um, yeah, and just to add the disclaimer again, yeah, the interview was recorded prior to some of the major kind of events um, that have occurred. So, yeah, some of the things that probably Sam said in that interview are probably, sadly, a bit grossly out of date now. Um, and But, yeah, he um, he has since actually updated um, the article um, that he drew um, that he wrote for Green Left, um, and with all the kind of incorporated all the kind of new information, including making a clear kind of condemnation of Russians' invasion of, of Ukraine. But then I wanted to kind of um, I'll give I wanted to go draw on some news from Green Left, especially I think this is also quite important um, because 
they are they are a group they are anti-war and peace networks um within australia that are pushing back against australia becoming role involved in a war in europe triggered by the russian ukraine conflict a diplomatic solution is essential they argue to um to avert a new war and this is in contrast to the fact that the major parties both the major parties whether it's the liberal party or the labor party they just accept this idea that conflict in the region is inevitable and just and this have an uncritical sort of backing of support for the United States and NATO military build up in Europe. Now, yeah, and while it's um while Prime Minister Scott Morrison has said that he will not send troops to um um to Ukraine, um Peter Dutton on the other hand said that military um assistance is possible. And of course, um, Morrison already announced that will, that Australia will impose sanctions on Russia, individu- Russian individuals, and seek to extend sanctions that are already in place. And of course, yeah. And then of course, um, um, the op- Labor Party just echoed the, the government's line, you know, pledging support for the NATO allies, condemning Russia, and affirming support for Ukraine's sovereignty. Now, here's the, th- the um, that, but here's the kind of thing. They essentially, anti-war and peace networks across Australia are pushing the federal government not to abandon diplomatic solutions and to pull back from the ACOS war alliance with the US and Britain. Um, in an open letter, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network called on the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister to use their close relationship with the um, British Foreign um, Defence Ministers and US Secretary of State to ensure nuclear weapons are not used, but also called for the US and Australia to allow the 2015 MISC to agreement parties, Germany, France, Russia and Ukraine, to work on a resolution. IPAN is also calling for the United Nations to be tasked to manage the wider implications and to seek peace between the major parties. And then you have the response from the Sydney Stop the War Coalition, you know, which has criti- which criticised the federal government on February 14 for taking up war and supporting the US and NATO military build-up in Europe, saying that Australia must push for a regional solution. Australia could play a constructive role in allowing the region to find a peaceful solution. War over Ukraine involving nuclear powers is madness. And of course, the coalition added, um, and this is similar echoes the kind of point we kind of made earlier in our program, you know, it serves as a distraction from um, from domestic problems and really only makes the autocratic president Radmir Putin stronger in Russia. And then you had uh, internationally, you had the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom warned that global peace is under threat. Recent developments culminating with the crisis of Ukraine have led to a rapid deterioration of our human security at levels reminiscent of those in 1914. And then, yeah, and then I guess, yeah, that's, those are some of the kind of different sort of responses that have been kind of put forward by the movements. And I think they do, I think they do point a way forward in terms of, because really, at the end of the day, I guess this is sort of the last kind of thing I want to sort of say on this issue for the rest of the program. But really, the, the main thing really we need to be looking forward to is we need to be looking for a, a independent position that is, um, that, and developed, that argues for peace and um, go, argues against any form of escalation of conflict, but also the position has to be independent from what the capitalist liberal um, governments want. Because at the end of the day, these capitalist governments, as we sort of affirmed, they're not interested in peace. They're not interested in resolving conflict. Um, they're only interested in resolving conflict in and so as far as it can also support their own interests. Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, I might pass it on to just Ari to give it, um, to give, uh, a, bif- a bit of a different news story, um, <laughs> from just talking about this whole, um, situation. Yes. Taking a break from Ukraine. Um, the, 
uh, rail union in New South Wales uh, has come out condemning the New South Wales government's uh, unilateral, unilateral shutdown of the Sydney rail network uh, on February 21st and its attempt to blame the union for the ensuing problems. And basically the, the situation is that the uh, New South Wales uh, public transport um, and particularly rail union um, uh, in the process of trying to renegotiate an enterprise agreement which expired, uh, I believe, mid last year. And so they are doing some uh, kind of industrial action in regards to, like, slowdowns and some, you know, slightly, as I think as they say, essentially slightly inconvenient things in terms of the operation of the rail network. And the uh, New South Wales government, uh, supported by the federal government, of course, has... Um, you know, or did briefly just shut down the whole train network um, in Sydney and massively inconvenienced people as opposed to mildly inconvenienced people, which the rail union was doing up to that point, and then tried to blame it on essentially these industrial actions that have been taken by the rail union um, in regards to the, the slowdown and the, the mild inconvenience that I mentioned. And <clears throat> thankfully, the, the New South Wales rail unions, uh, the union was successful in basically getting out the information that this had nothing to do with them. And the despite it being an action taken by the New South Wales uh, Liberal National Government and the federal government, the New South Wales tried to bring a case, New South Wales government tried to bring a case against um, the rail union in, uh, was it the Fair Work Commission? Sorry, I've just lost my... Uh, but they tried to essentially bring a, a case saying that, like, uh, this trying to to penalize the union for the yeah in the fair work commission um, to penalize the union for them shutting down the rail system it's kind of a strange thing but mm. basically they said that it was based on a, a risk ass- assessment that they'd done um, apparently in the middle of the night but they did then have to withdraw their application to the um, Fair Work Commission on February the 22nd, that is the day after they shut down the rail system, when the union called on them to show anybody the risk assessment that they'd done. So it is kind of, it is seems like a very clear case of the, the Liberal National Government in the in New South Wales just just trying to smear the union for, again, trying to uh, bargain for a new enterprise agreement since there's has lapsed and trying to get better conditions for their uh for workers in the public transport uh network um like and it's not i don't know i always hate to say oh it's not unreasonable demands because <laughs> there are no unreasonable demands really with these sorts of things but it's all the fair and reasonable stuff and especially like one of the the um one of the things that they that the union wanted to put into the enterprise agreement was a commitment to maintaining a high standard of hygiene with cleaners on good full-time jobs and as we've seen that's a very necessary thing like aside from the the whole covid pandemic thing all these public spaces being cleaned a lot has and mask wearing and stuff has actually led to like much um, weaker flu seasons the last couple of years that this sort of stuff's been going on. So, like, 
this is it's for not only the rail workers good interests but it's for any for commuters best interests to have these sorts of measures and obviously to have well-paid staff and people who want to be there and whatnot Mm. but there are these sort of common sense things that the liberal national government is opposed to of course because higher wages full-time jobs is not really it's not really their style i suppose Mm. yeah and i guess to kind of add i guess a number of comments i mean Mm. this this kind of whole situation kind of just re- represents the, that the, the level of disproportionate power that you know capitalists and bosses and governments have over over workers when mm. when workers don't even have a genuine right to to go on strike without having to get approval from the yeah. fair work commission the fact that the government can just go and make a decision to lock out workers and also mm. shut down the rail, um, the rail network without, you know, without any sort of consent. You know, it's a very different story when masses of workers go on strike and shut down the entire railway system. They're the ones who, are, at the end of the day, they're the ones who are responsible for the work. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones who do the work. It's not these politicians. It's not these capitalists. They're not the ones doing the work. Yeah. It is the workers themselves. Um, they actually, those workers have a much more legitimate right to take industrial action than these than than these um these capitalists at the top um do um like in essentially quote but of yeah. course the problem with the world today and the problem with the current laws is essentially the cap um the government has probably made a calculation um that essentially that they're probably going to be able to get away with everything they've done in in terms of the of the whole machinations of the Fair Work Commission mm. whereas if if the if it was the other side, if um, the railway, tramway, and bus union went on a general strike, shut down the entire um, tram network, you know, for whatever reason, could be for um, similar kind of demands or even more radical demands than kind of what mm. they kind of pushed before, uh, they would be they would literally be fined to um, with mass they'll be hit with massive fines and it would mm. all be directed by the bosses. Yeah. Because the government's not going to get in trouble for doing this, of course. That's and it conveniently, as we were discussing, that Ukraine happened and everybody forgot about this. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like it. It's like it's like yeah. Everyone. Um, that's that's got like a classic example of how mm. you know the, the the kind of domestic um the distraction kind of, kind of like domestic kind of issues. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess um yeah I think that's um I think yeah it's definitely I think this was I think. Yeah, all solidarity with um, the RTBU and yeah. in their kind of dispute, and yeah, we hope they can keep, they can push um, back mm. against this and resist this because mm. yeah, it's just ultimately, I think it's it's unacceptable what um, what the New South Wales government did um, yeah, in response sure. to this, but um, in response to a very almost yeah would have been a very small, not that disruptive <laughs> um, disruptive um, mm. industrial action. Yeah. And um and in again to like maintain it's sort of it's opposing um some measures that are possible that like happen when uh public transport networks get privatized basically so it's opposing line closures it's opposing reduced safety standards it's opposing loss of jobs this enterprise agreement and obviously trying to you know keep up wages and stuff not the usual things but it is like I. I really do want to make that point very clear that this is not, you don't need that, that, that sort of justification for industrial action, but this is not just, we want better wages. This is, we want you to not make the public transport system worse. And the response is this. 
it's yeah absurd and despicable mm. in my opinion yeah definitely Anyway, um, I think we'll go, um, I'll go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. The current world in which the higher education sector operates is characterized by profit and power. And as universities are further incorporated into global neoliberalism, these ideas of the public good face the most serious threat that they have ever faced. COVID pandemic, besides highlighting all of the other fissures in society, has also really highlighted the terrible inequalities that have long existed within the sector. The precarity, the overwork, declining mental health caused by intensifying privatization and the privileging of profits at all costs, and students who should be our co-learners in this process face mounting debt. If this pandemic has done nothing else, it has shown us that this system in its current iteration is unsustainable. We have to organize and fight against it. Uh, there is no other way. There is no alternative to quote somebody who shall remain nameless. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it is 8 a.m., so it is just about time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, we're going to announce some upcoming kind of political events and protests and rallies that you can get behind and support. So the first event I want to make mention of is on Sunday, February the 27th. There's going to be the, there's going to be March for Justice kind of protests happening around at, across different kind of suburbs. Um, this is the same March for Justice um, that was organised in response to um, the the um, the sexual assault allegations again um, in the in within the Parliament House, and so this is going to be a bit of a a woman's sort of right um, action. Um, the the main pro the there is, um, the main also rally that um, that is, and there's also going to be a rally happening um, in March for Justice um, in in Geelong at 10:30 a.m. at the Shreds Hall, 127 Meyer Street in Geelong. So yeah, definitely that would definitely be worth um, checking out. And then on Tuesday, March the first, there's going to be a rally protesting for refugees is not a crime. Drop the fines that which has been organised by Refugee Action Collective. From Thursday, March the third, um, there's going to be there's going to be the film Miss Marks, which is about um, uh, the which is about um, I think I think it's pretty sure it's about Eleanor Marks or who was it about or Carl yeah I, it's a, it's a film related to Marks um, and you can you can watch it on the at the cinemas and there's actually a review of it available on Green Left and then on Saturday. Um, March the 5th, there's going to be a rally, Free the Refugees, at 2pm at the State Library. On Tuesday, March the 8th, there's going to be a rally in March, International Women's Day, at 5.30pm at the Treasury Building Spring Street in the city. And then on Friday, March the 25th, there's going to be a global the, uh, the global strike for client, People Not Profit. Um, and then some um, some other events to kind of announce. On March 15th, there's going to be a rally, Fight for Workers' Health and Safety, at Saturday, March 15th at um, 2 p.m. at the State Library. Um, this is a rally that's going to be responding to the government's kind of COVID-19 kind of response. 
And then the next, um, the next kind of event to kind of highlight, oh no, no, not to, not for the 15th March, it's, um, so wait, let me get the actual date. I, I got that, I got that date wrong for, for, um, it's on Saturday, the top, on the Saturday, the 12th of March, there is going to be a rally, fight for, um, health, um, workers, health and safety, and that's going to be happening at Saturday, 12th of March at, at 2 p.m. at the State Library. And then the 15th of, um, of March, there's going to be, uh, a public forum organized by Green Left at 6.30 p.m. Um, expect to see details posted on the greenleft.org.a website, but there's going to be a public forum on the, on what's behind, um, the, the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict. So, yeah, um, that's going to be at 6.30 p.m. and it will be at the, um, the Resistance Center, level 5407 Swanson Street, but also over Zoom. Okay. Um, now I, I thought that maybe we'll go, we'll go, um, we can probably use the, we'll probably use the rest, uh, we'll probably, um, use the opportunity now to actually play a bit of a song for, um, for Green Left Radio. I was going to play, um, Worlds Turning, um, by Yofu Yutu Yindi. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, we have about a few minutes until our next interview, um, so I'll probably just play a quick few announcements and then we'll go on to that interview. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR and the song we are playing before it was World Turning by Yofi Yindi. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio Tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And for our second interview for the program, um, we're very happy to be having Richard um, Petkovic um, from Worlds Collide um, on our program today. To give you just a bit of background, um, Worlds Collide is a band of seven artists from seven different cultural backgrounds from the urban jungles of Western Sydney, making contemporary Australian music and connecting with communities across Australia to raise the profile of the power of cross-cultural music. And they're also currently in the process of um, making a a, a tour across Australia with many gigs and shows. So, yeah, good morning, Richard. Hi, great to be here. Yeah, so... um, what can you, I guess, what can you tell us um, about um, Worlds Collides? Because from my understanding, according to your press release, you know, it is for um, your, it is the, this, this project is, is um, has a particular kind of focus in terms of like, just not just music, but of kind of building kind of connections between different communities and culture. And I guess, what can you guess tell us about that and um, for, our, for our listeners? Well, I suppose the, um, the baseline that, that, that we come from is that, you know, a few of us work in community cultural development or used to, and that's the uh, process of using art to build community. So having that as a background and being creative people as well, we wanted to, you know, we 
live and work in a diverse area of Western Sydney. So we wanted to empower you know, people from different cultural backgrounds to say, hey, we can create contemporary music together and also take the, the form forward in Australia rather than it just being the normal blues or rock or whatever it is these days. We want to say, hey, you've got a, you know, a tub, Indian tabla or a, this or that. Why can't we all play together and create a sound that's unique to this space? So it's about having a place-based uh, sound, basically. So one thing I've created is this tag called the Western Sydney Sound. So you know, everyone's heard about the Seattle sound or the Manchester sound. Why can't we have this, you know, the Western Sydney sound or the Brunswick sound or wherever it is, but it's a matter of investing in your in your community and the locals around you, your local hidden treasures and creating something new and fresh out of it. Hmm. And I guess, yeah, that's, that sounds, um, like a, a quite, quite, very, um, interesting. And I guess, what can you, I guess, what can you tell us about some of the, some of the kind of different cultural backgrounds that I guess almost sort of make up this sort of Western Sydney sound that you're sort of trying to kind of create? Well, basically, you know, a lot of different cultures, as you mentioned, but one that's really interesting and sort of topical at the moment is Shota Tulsan, who's a Uyghur. So the Uyghurs are the, uh, Muslim minority in China at the moment who are getting absolutely annihilated there at the moment. So it's really pertinent now that we talk about Shota and his culture and his, you know, he sings song cycles that are a thousand years old. So, and this culture is being really crushed and his community is going through large trauma. So, you know, people, you know, from where you are in, in Melbourne, there's a, an emerging community of Uyghur, uh, Uyghur community in same in Sydney and a bigger one in Adelaide, we want to bring a voice to them and say, hey, we support you, we love you, we know you're going through trauma and check out your amazing shot at Tulsan and how we've melded into uh, an Australian kind of context. And um, I guess what can you give us um, a bit of kind of information, I guess, um, you know, for, for our listeners um who I guess um, want to um, who want to kind of find, um, who might want to attend um, your tour? What can you tell us about some of the dates and um, places that you're going to be performing at? Yeah, we're playing uh, tomorrow night at um, the Nightcap with uh, the mighty Black Jesus Experience. They should check them out. We're supporting them, so we're really thankful to them. Um, and then on the 11th and 12th, 11th we're in Geelong, and 12th we're in uh, Bar Usul. And, you know, then we continue on to regional New South Wales. We're going to places like Goulburn and Wagga and Wollongong. And and coming back to the 26th uh, to Frankston to play the Bantana Festival there. So in and around, you know, Victoria and uh, regional New South Wales over the next month, luckily. Hmm. And I guess I also want to... Um I guess I just want to hear about um, any other kind of comments that you might want to make about, I guess, Worlds Collide, like in terms of like, you know, what, what are some of the kind of other, the other things that kind of drive um, this project? Well, basically, you know, we're all, like I said, we'll have a community context, a community background, the way we work, we're all politically motivated. And so, you know, for instance, our, uh, the hip, our MC, MC Eski, he works in the, um, he works in the Tetnoffs, Street University in Mount Druid. Mount Druid's a really low socioeconomic area in Sydney, and um, he works with hip hop in that region to empower young people. So our lyrics really got that sort of social conscience, political edge to it. We really see that that's really important to all of our message because it's about empowerment and it's about speaking our truth. So Worlds Clyde's really about that, and it's about groove. We have a great time. We share some culture. Also got Yao Dechi, who's a Ghanaian percussionist that he brings his chants and his stories into it and then we mix it all up with some Latin beats and whatnot but 
for all of us, we're all, you know, progressively thinking people and we really want to empower people. So, we, you know, we've made this music, but really it's about empowerment. It's about saying, hey, there's lots of culturally diverse people in your area. Let's, you know, bring them together. Let's empower them as Australians. We're not the other anymore. And we really want to uh, just go out and build community and, you know, and in a good leftist way, share some love. Mm. And so you'd um, you'd think that um, you know with with your kind of project, there's kind of like you you also see this as I guess an opportunity to I guess you know to almost like push I guess a political message of standing up against oppression and also of you know supporting you know the self determination of all the kind of um, different sort of cultures that I guess on display. Hundred percent. You know, I come from the former Yugoslavia. I was born here, but come from the former Yugoslavia. And- and that's, you know, a place that's been torn apart by war. So that's, you know, we felt that via our families and all cultures like the Uyghurs now are going through that. And it doesn't have, need to be like that. We all have our own sovereignty. We all have our own culture. Let's respect that. But let's also respect the other person's culture. There is no one way. And that's what we're really all about. We're bringing that together to say, hey, music covers all, you know, all cultures. So let's bring it together and showcase this wonderful thing we call Australian multiculturalism. Hmm. And um, yeah, I, I think we'll pop, we can possibly we can include this interview. And I guess, do you have I guess any final comments to make? And I'll also let you know that I guess for our listeners and also you, um, following um, this, um, once we finish this interview, I will we'll play one of your songs, which is um, which I think which I think is available on Spotify right now, um, which is titled yeah. "Freedom." Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I think it's important to know that um, you know we're from the Cultural Arts Collective. That's something that people can follow and be part of and see all the other music acts that we're getting up and about. We've launched a little record label to support that. And that's, again, it's all about self-determination, about uh, social justice and about, you know, the power of music really in a positive light. So that's what we're about and we hope to see you at some of our shows. Hmm, definitely. All right. And um, just to go, go kind of repeat, um, why don't you, just for our listeners, why don't you just repeat um, the dates that you're going to be performing in um, Melbourne? Thank you. We're going to be at the Nightcap on Saturday, the 26th of Feb, then in Geelong, Beeves Bar on the 11th, and that's with the Green Left Weekly there. They're supporting us there, the Green Left, sorry. And then on the 12th of Bar Russell, which we're having a cultural, um, you're sure that's doing a, a solo cult, you know, we a cultural concert and dinner at seven o'clock, and then Worlds Collide are playing free at ten. No, yeah. all right. Well, that all sounds um, very good. And in fact, yeah, I'll definitely be at um, the um, the show on March the twelfth. So yeah, looking forward to meeting you. Yeah, looking forward to catch up. Thanks for your time, and listeners, keep the keep it rolling, keep the good stuff going. Right. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks, Richard. You're listening Thanks. to Green Left Radio. And as I said before, um, following the end of this interview, I will play, we'll be playing Freedom by Worlds Collide. All right. Um, so you're listening to Green Left Radio and we'll just interviewing Richard, um, Petkovic, um, from Worlds Collide, which is a band of seven artists from seven different cultural backgrounds from the urban jungles of Western Sydney, making contemporary Australian music and connecting with communities across Australia to raise the profile of the power of co- um, cross cultural music. Now, as I sort of announced before, uh, for the next, I was going to play, uh, we'll get to play a song from them, which is titled Freedom by Worlds Collide. And um, hope listeners enjoy. You are listening to Green Left Radio.
You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to Worlds Collide by, um, well, not 
um, freedom by worlds collide. Um, in fact, um, we just did an interview with um, one of their one of this um, one of their and um, one of the lead pe- people um, who have part of that. And so yeah, they're going to be actually performing tomorrow at the Night Cat, and um, they're also going to be performing at the Bar Usu on, on the 12th of March. So yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and I guess um, we're getting to guess to the kind of end of the program. I guess we sort of wanted to end it on a number of kind of different sort of messages. Maybe getting Ari to sort of start off. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And one of the uh, Pip Hinman, one of the the editors at Green Left, has uh, written an article or analysis called which is called "Who Needs War." And it kind of going through a bunch of the, it is a bit outdated now, but it's going through a bunch of the kind of context around, especially what we were talking about earlier with the, the Australian right wing and the, the liberal nationals using this whole, you know, emergency invasion, military action, whatever it is in Ukraine as a, a tool to, to fearmonger and try and, you know, say we're strong on national defense or whatever and, so you should re-elect us despite us constantly screwing everything up. Um, but the one of the things that, again, has sort of... Well, I don't know if everybody's forgotten, but has was certainly erased from my mind until <laughs> I opened this article, is that the uh, former and current security intelligence organizations, uh, Australian security intelligence organization chiefs, felt impelled to contradict Defense Minister Peter Dutton's warmongering. You know that the... The wannabe Australian general has overstepped the mark, which is ASIO chief Mike Burgess uh, made no secret of his displeasure that Dutton told Parliament about an alleged foreign interference plot during a Senate Estimates Committee in uh, mid-February, and um, that Dutton claimed that the Chinese Communist Party is backing Anthony Albanese's election campaign, describing the Labour leader as the Manchurian candidate, which, yeah, good job. Uh, The... Fun quote from Burgess here is uh, that foreign interference is not confined to one side of politics, unsurprisingly. But it's just this whole thing of the, the coalition government salivating at this distraction after having failed to this in the article talking about this thing with ASIO, but salivating at this whole thing after having failed to keep the most vulnerable people safe um, in the context of the COVID pandemic and the as Pip points out, in more than two years, this rich island nation, which is us, just to be clear, with all of our natural resources, did not plan or organize to vaccinate remote First Nations communities. And with a growing disapproval rating and Labor determined not to really differentiate itself on big policy questions, they, the, this now the Ukraine crisis is providing the coalition with this perfect distraction to capitalize on people's security concerns and whatever so yeah and i guess yeah given that um i think those are all kind of important kind of points and i think they're important points to kind of end on because really you know as green left radio and also um green left you know we are committed to opposing this sort of war um warmongering kind of narrative that is pushed by our capitalist leaders and Mm. you know we have to be we have to be pushing um against all this kind of reaction all this sort of right-wing um Propaganda, and I think, yeah, that's why you should support Green Left. You should support Free CR Community Radio, and um, yeah, like to, and yeah, I'll probably yeah. end it by saying that you know, like to, because um, we're getting to the end of our program. I like to thank you know all our listeners for tuning in this week, um, and hope to, um, hope to see, and hope to see you on the streets, and 
you know, we've got basically, um, stay tuned for, um, Earth Matters, which follows after this, and stay tuned also, um, um, be with us next, um, next, um, next week. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.